If we haven't met before, my name is Christina. I'm on staff here at RBC, and I work in this room on Sunday mornings. So I work with the senior high ministry. So if you're in junior high, uh, stay tuned for a few more years, and I will be your Emily. So hey, guys. Um, today we're going to be continuing on in our He Gets Us series, and we're going to be talking about, uh, actually, what do you guys think we're talking about based on the music? Did any theme stick out to you girls today from the music? Just scream it out. Just say it. Say it. Do you have it? I think, you, I, think I heard it right. What'd you say? Wow, that's a really good guess. Made fully well. <laughs> We're talking about shame today. <laughs> I thought I heard shh, so I don't know if that was someone shushing someone or guessing. So I was like, you have it. You're so close. So our, uh, the title today is Made Fully Well, but we're talking about shame. So we'll be going back a little bit in the Gospel of Matthew to Matthew chapter 9. But before we get into that, I just want to say thank you guys for having me today. I'm super excited. This is really such a blessing that I've been looking forward to for a few months now because I love Bible study. Like, if you get a few ladies together and we get into the Word, I love it. But that was not my upbringing. I did not grow up reading the Bible. I didn't even grow up knowing what John 3.16 was. Do you guys remember, like, Tim, Tim Tebow, when he was, like, huge and viral? He would, like, put these, like, things underneath his eyes with Bible verses. Do you guys know that? The football player? Well, it was, like, said throughout school. I went to Briarwoods, and they were like, yeah, he had, like, Philippians 4.13 on his face. And I was like, what is that? Like, I had no clue, but I grew up in, like, knowing about God, and I knew it, know, growing up knowing about Jesus, but I couldn't even tell you a Bible verse. I remember I had a friend, his name was Corey, and he was like, so what religion are you? And I was like, oh, I'm Catholic. And he was like, oh, okay, well, guess my middle name. And I was like, yeah, okay, I got it, I got it. He was like, uh, so it was a king in the Bible, and I'm like, Joseph. He was like, no. And I was like, is that a king? I don't know. And I was like, Jesus. He was like, no. And I was like, I don't know any other person. Michael the Archangel. And he was like, that's definitely not it. And I was like, okay, what, what king? And he's like, David. I'm like, I've never heard of a King David. I did not know. And I used to think Psalm was pronounced Psalm. Has anyone made that, uh, has anyone made that uh, before? You have? I remember someone's like, hey, can you read from Psalms? This is in something called CCD that we had. It was like a Sunday school. And I was like, yeah, I'll read, I'll read from this book. And they're like, okay, turn to this. And they like gave me a piece of paper. And I was like, so, Psalms 42? And they were like, that's not how you pronounce it. I was like, never read it. So it took me a while to get into the word. But actually, one of the first Bible verses that I had memorized as a tool for evangelism when I first became a Christian was Philippians 4.13. And I was like, I can do all things through Christ. So we would play volleyball me and my friends, when we graduated from high school, we played sand volleyball kind of competitively. And so if someone set, like, set me a good set and I went to like hit it, I go, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ. And I would just say this over and over again so people knew I was a Christian. I was like, Jesus. Um, but I didn't know. I was actually using that verse out of context the entire time. Who knew that that verse was not about athletic strength? I didn't. I had never read Philippians 4, but I knew that verse. Another one that actually us ladies, us lady leaders got together to talk about the other day was Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am God. But we often stop there. You know, the verse actually continues, and I will be exalted among the nations. The verse actually isn't really about our stillness as much as it is about God being exalted. So today we're going to be going into an authentic Bible study. Like for real, I'm going through three verses for our 30 minutes today. And we're going to unpack it. And I'm going to show you guys how to use Bible verses in context. My, um, 
my husband has something funny where he uses stuff out of context constantly. And one verse that, or one phrase that he has is, that's what I thought. And I'll say something like, hey, we're out of coffee. And he'll go, that's what I thought. And he'll just use it constantly out of context. And I had a friend who used to say, uh, well, you know what they say. So I would say, hey, uh, how's your day? Well, you know what they say. No, I actually don't know what they say. How was your day? So my friend and my husband constantly use random phrases out of context just to be funny. Um, But I'm going to show you guys actually how to put verses into right context so that we can answer our friends when they say, how are you doing? Okay, so um, before I get into it, there's something that I want to challenge you guys with. I heard this quote. Actually, I read this quote the other day. It's It's not word for word, but it said something like this. People think they want to know about God, but they really just want to experience him. When there's a lot of people wondering, is Jesus real? Is God really like, hey, give me the knowledge. Prove to me that he's real. But that's not actually what our hearts are after. Our hearts are after experiencing God. I could tell you everything about this Bible. I could tell you what it says and the Greek and the Hebrew and all that stuff. And you could have knowledge, but if you haven't experienced it, then you can't tell if it's real. And there is um, an amazing pastor and Christian author. His name is Francis Chan. And um, he, was, he was saying in a sermon something funny. He said that his uh, people in his congregation call him the Moses of the congregation. They're like, yo, Francis, you are our Moses. And if you guys haven't heard about the story of Moses, it's about this guy who um, helped get some Israelites. Because there's like people out of slavery, out of Egypt. And as they're making this voyage, Moses would go and he would go up this mountain And he would experience the presence of God. And he would talk with God. And God would give him instructions. And he would go back down to the mountain and give the instructions to the Israelites. And they're like, Francis, Pastor Francis, you're our Moses. You go up to the mountain and you tell us what to do. And Francis is like, wait, no, I don't like that. No, we're going to change it up. Because it's actually not my job to go up to the mountain and tell you what God says. It is your job. See, when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, It gave us the way to God, to go up to the mountain ourselves to experience the presence of God. So if you're up here just hearing me explain the Bible today, it might not sit with you unless you go up and you do it for yourself. The word is one way to help experience the presence of God. And once you've experienced the presence of God, your whole life changes. It can't not have changed because he's so holy, yet he loves you tenderly. So, as we go into our Bible study, I'm going to give you guys just a few tools on how to climb up the mountain yourself and how to really get into the Word of God. So, would you open your Bibles with me to Matthew 9, 20 through 22. There's also some Bibles on the table, so open them up as a group, because what I'm going to be doing is tool number one, different translations. I love when people have different translations, and I want you guys to use this in your study. I'm going to be reading a different translation than you see on the screen than all of you have on your tables. So turn to Matthew 9, 20 through 22. And as I'm reading these verses, I want you guys to also read on the screen, also read in your books, and see the full picture that all these different translations um, paint for you today. So Matthew 9, 20 through 22. And once you're there, can you and your whole table actually stand for me? Get, get some blood flowing. We're going to stand together and we're going to read the word. We're going to wake each other up a little bit. All right, let's get into it. Matthew 9, 20 through 22. And behold, 
a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years, came up behind him, that is Jesus, and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. Would you pray with me? Father God, I come before you today knowing that I am um, a sinful human being, God, and I'm carrying forth your word. So I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would move, Father, in miraculous ways. God, I pray that you would use this vessel, God, to encourage all of us, Father, through your word. I pray over for all these girls today and all these ladies, Father, that you would speak to them in a new and personal way, that you would revive our hearts in affection for you, Father, and that you would reveal things to us just in these three verses of Scripture about your amazing, loving character, God. Dear Father, I thank you so much, and um, may this day magnify you, and I pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so for this entire Bible study today, we're going to be focusing on just these three verses, but there's a ton packed into here historically, culturally, and spiritually. So first, I'm going to go to the setting. Where does this take place? Uh, Capernaum. So I'm a huge map person. If you've been in my office, you see that I have a huge map uh, made out of wood that I actually got from Etsy. It's really cool. And I bought two of the maps, and I have the same one in my house. I love it so much. I love maps, and I love traveling. So I had to go to Google Maps and be like, okay, where's Capernaum? So Capernaum is right where that red dot is, right on the top of the Sea of Galilee. So it's kind of like, I guess, the tropics of the Middle East. This is like a coastal town, and it's really cool. And this is the center of Jesus' ministry. So if you've heard about Jesus, you've probably heard of the towns Bethlehem, Capernaum, Nazareth. So this is the place where Jesus moves to when he's a young adult, and he makes his new home here. Now it's the center of his ministry. Capernaum was a place where there was a lot of Jewish people, so they abided by this thing, the Jewish law, the Mosaic law, which you find in the Old Testament of your scriptures. And that's super important, so keep that in mind. Mosaic law is what the Jewish people followed, and they lived, a lot of them lived in the town of Capernaum. So um, I did some research because I really like to travel, and um, I decided to look up some vacation packages, you know, to like see what really Capernaum's all about, like would we want to go? So I found this video to take us on a little, a little walking tour of uh, Capernaum. So um, I'm actually going to read a little narration that this website has for us if we would ever want to travel to Capernaum. This is what it says, <clears throat> laidbacktrip.com, okay? Capernaum is believed to be the hometown of Jesus and the center of his many activities. Ooh, ah, maybe we'd even drive a Mercedes while we're there too, ooh. So why is Capernaum a significant biblical site? Capernaum is often mentioned in the Gospels. Ooh. And the local synagogue was the first place where Jesus preached. You might have also heard about Jesus and his miracles, so note that Galilee is the area where he did most of them. By the way, the Sea of Galilee is also a place where Jesus walked on water. While we were not as successful as Jesus in this regard, it was still nice to dip our feet after a whole day of walking and driving into this freshwater lake. Ooh. So this is Capernaum. This is where our story is taking place. I just had to do this because I was doing this for my own research, and I was like, they need to see too. So um, yeah, if you guys want to book a trip to Capernaum, I'm in. Let's go. 
Um, so this is where our story is taking place today. And if you want, you can go to the next slide for me. Thanks, guys. Um, so this is what's happening here in Jesus' life is this is one of the missionary journeys. So Jesus' ministry has just taken, like, blast off. Like it's really popping now. And Jesus has just come back from a series of healings, a series of miracles, and he's boating over the Sea of Galilee and he gets off with his disciples and instantly there's a crowd. Like uh, like a crowd crowd. Like have you guys ever been released from school at the same time? Like there's an early release or something and like everyone's trying to get out and your backpacks are like bumping into each other and it's like getting stuck because everyone's like sardines in the hallway. You guys know what I'm talking about? This is the type of crowd that Jesus is experiencing. Like, everyone is pressing up on Jesus from all sides because he's like some sort of a celebrity. Now, whether they were after his heart or just the things he could offer, that's a, you know, that's a question. They're like, Jesus, heal me. I don't want nothing to do with you. Might be some of the people. But other, in other words, they, 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 they were just all pressing on him from all different sides. So this is the crowd. This is what's happening. And among this, a synagogue leader comes And he goes towards Jesus and he says, Jesus, I have a servant who's in need of healing. Can you come heal them? And Jesus says, yeah, I'm down. So then Jesus and his disciples and this whole group is moving to go heal the servant. And this is where our story takes place. I'll read the verses again, Matthew 9, 20 through 22. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touched his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. So this woman is fighting through the crowd of sardines. She reaches for Jesus. She touches him. He feels the touch. He stops. He feels power leave him. He turns and looks for the woman. And that's where we are right now. But it says she's been suffering for bleeding for 12 years. So what I actually want to do is I want to back this up 12 years. There is a chapter in the Bible called Leviticus 15. And uh, the, the way that I actually found out about this Bible study is, was, wasn't because I studied it in like seminary. I actually don't even have a college degree. I found out this Bible study from my own quiet time with the Lord. There was a time where I was really sick and I couldn't fall asleep and I was like, ugh, and I was praying so hard. I was like, Lord Jesus, I don't feel good. Can you please put me to sleep? But I once heard someone say, hey, if you can't sleep at night, uh, God probably wants you to talk to him. And I was like, okay. So I got out of bed and I got my Bible and I was like, I'm just going to flip. Like, I don't, I'm so tired. And it went to Leviticus 15 and it's this whole chapter about blood. And I was like, oh, like, God, what do you have for, like, I don't, I don't know. Like, I'm half asleep. And I just remembered the story in Matthew 9 about this woman who was healed from bleeding. I was like, oh my gosh, this is insane. So Leviticus 15 talks about a woman who is suffering from a discharge of blood. Now, in these verses, before I get really into the depths of Leviticus 15, it talks about a woman who had suffered uh, for 12 years with constant bleeding. Some people think that's like a menstrual cycle, like a 12-year-long period, That's not confirmed. It can be. Some people think it's a hemorrhage. If you look in a different translation, it says hemorrhage, which is a burst of the blood vessel, which can happen in your brain. All we know for some some way that this discharge is leaving her body. So it's physical and it's visible. But we don't know where the source is. We don't know where it's coming from. But we know that people can see it. And Leviticus 15 specifically says, guys, this is crazy. If a woman has been suffering from a discharge of blood 
for longer than a menstrual cycle, longer than you would normally bleed, then she is unclean. And it goes into details of her uncleanness, why she's defiled. If a woman has been suffering from any discharge of blood, like any, any blood is coming out of anywhere, something like deeper than a Band-Aid, so this woman would have had gauze, would have had wraps, and all that stuff to hide in her blood wherever it is. She cannot be touched. Anything she sits on cannot be sat on as well. The bed she lays in, no one can lay in that same bed as her. She is supposed to be isolated and quarantined. Now, what's interesting about this is this is 12 years long. We don't know the age of this woman, but if she was married, her husband would have never kissed her goodnight, would have never embraced her when she was sad. They wouldn't have slept in the same bed. They wouldn't have touched the same furniture. If she wasn't married, say she was 12 years old when this happened. Some of you are 12. Imagine playing with your friends, and one day your friend starts bleeding. And then, but the next day, you don't really know that. The next day, you're like, hey, mom, can I go hang out with this person? No, 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 you can't hang out with that person. But why not? They're bleeding. This girl would have been shut into her home until she healed and recovered. But she never did. Twelve years, she was that house on the block that everybody knew about. In fact, imagine washing your clothes stained with blood, hanging outside to dry. Your house is marked, and you are marked with your own blood for 12 years. Now, if you lose a lot of blood, you get weak, right? You get really lightheaded. So now this woman is not emotionally strong or physically strong, yet she has no one to help her. How insane is that? She's not only in need of physical healing, but she's in need of emotional healing. This woman has gone through it. Oh, and and more for Leviticus 15. She can't go into a temple. So not only is she shut in from her house, like shut inside her house, she can't go to any religious social uh, activities. She can't go, uh, go to the temple at all. So she's just totally outcast from society for a condition that happened to her, that she had no control over. If you turn to Mark 5, which Sheena read for us, thank you so much, Sheena. Mark 5, 25 through 34, explains it this way. So here's another tool I'm giving you. Across references. This is awesome for your Bible study. So I just went into three verses, but I actually found out that these three verses are also talked about in other Gospels. So we're going to go into Gospel of Mark and see what Mark has to say about this encounter. Mark 5, 25 through 34. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garments. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said, You see, the crowd is pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now that's crazy because Mark recalls it that she had gone seeing doctors after doctors after doctors, and they were probably poking and prodding her, trying to heal her, and they didn't make it any better. She actually got worse. 
Much more pain came, much more suffering. But she kept asking for help and for help and for help, and she spent everything she had. So now she's just isolated. Not as, she doesn't have any friends or any, any, any community, but she's broke because she was trying to be healed. So what we're going to do here is we're going to put, I, I love doing this on the Bible, put your feet into the shoes of that person. So I'm just going to try to figure out where, where this woman is this day. Okay, this is from my own uh, uh, knowledge or thought of the context that we have historically and culturally. And I want to see what is this woman really dealing here? So it's really interesting because both accounts talk of it as almost it's the same day, which for 12 years after suffering much, I don't know if I would hear like this divine physician or healer. If I would have believed it, I'd have been like, no, I'm just going to stay here. Like, it's just going to, I'm going to get worse. I'm going to lose more money. Like, it's really not worth it. But it seems like the same day she hears about Jesus, she moves into action. And she goes outside. Now, what's interesting is people would have known about this woman, right? If they'd grown up in the same community. So they would have seen her. So I wonder if she, like, hid herself. She, like, clothed everything up and, and tried to not be seen. And I wonder if even while this was happening, you could see the blood staining her garments. This is just me thinking, okay? This is not necessarily in the Bible. But I wonder. And she goes out. She hears reports about Jesus in her house. And she leaves and she says, I believe that he can. I have faith that he can. He's, he's called the Messiah. Some people rumored him to be the son of David. Oh, he can heal me. Now, what's interesting is Pharisees back then would have been like, girl, what you doing? You can't even go in the temple and you're going to try to touch the rumored son of God like in flames. Like you would just die on the spot. But she's like, no, I have hope. And she believes that God loves her and that God's a healer. And she goes after Jesus. And I can only imagine her going through the crowd saying, get out of my way, get out of my way. I see Jesus. This was no casual contact, Okay. A bunch of people were brushing up against him. Not all of them were healed. Like, oh, oh my shoulder, it's so much better. Like, it wasn't like that. She intentionally pursued him through the crowd. So she's getting through, she's getting through. She sees his garments. I can only imagine now she sees a synagogue leader telling him to go a different direction. She's like, okay, we're going this way. Okay, Jesus, 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 Jesus. She's trying to get to him. And then she's like, if I just touch his garments, if I just touch his garments, if I just touch his garments. And she does. And instantly from the source, it says it's dried up. Now she's like, Oh my gosh. But you know what her reaction is? It's not, hallelujah, woo, look at me. She hides. It says that Jesus has to go looking for her. And Jesus says, who touched me? He felt it. Even though everyone else is touching him, he feels that one intentional pursuit. And he stops. Who touched me? And what she does in reaction is she gets out of the crowd and she sees Jesus and she's in fear and trembling because she knows her shame. And she sees Jesus, and she lays everything out before him in front of the public, tells the whole story, everything, lays down, and he says, go in peace. You have been healed. Your faith has healed you. That is absolutely insane and very controversial. So what can we pull out of this? What does this story have to do for us? This real-life story that happened over 2,000 years ago. Okay, cool. We know, like, what it would have been like. We know the history. We know, like, the mosaic. Okay, we're good. Like, what, what, how does this apply to me, Christina? I'm going to be talking about one thing today. Shame. 
This woman felt shame in the same way that we feel shame today. And it is reported that shame is the most visceral feeling that we can feel as human beings. Listen to this quote. We feel shame and we feel humiliated, exposed and small and are unable to look another person straight in the eye. We want to sink into the ground and disappear. Shame makes us direct our focus inward and view our entire self in a negative light. So I'm just going to give like a little, uh, little illustration for shame. The other day I was talking to someone and they were talking, they were asking me a question. I forget. They were like, what? Did you have an obsession in middle school? And instantly I wanted to hide. I was like, nope, that was totally cool. Like, nope, I don't know what you're talking about. And they're like, no, no, I can like see. Like, did, I, did, did you have like an obsession or something? Like something that I really enjoyed and was passionate about. I was like, one direction. And I had a total thing for One Direction. We actually had our whole lockers just totally decorated, and our friend group name was The Directioners. And I'm just laying this out here for vulnerability because I need healing. Uh, I deleted all those photos since that moment. Okay, y'all, we dressed up as One Direction, as a girlfriend group, and went out to Niall's favorite restaurant, which was Nando's, and we ordered his favorite meal. And when people found out about this, y'all, I just wanted to put a paper bag over my face. I was like, no, I'm not in love with them. I don't know what you're talking about. I had a life-size Nile poster in my bedroom. And I'm so ashamed. Not, well, they're a great band, but it was too excessive, okay? It was too obsessive. And um, so I'm a little ashamed. So here's, do you have a question? <laughs> That would be really bad because I couldn't go dressed up as Shrek at a restaurant. You did? Oh my gosh. Okay, there's hope for me. I wonder if you guys can see my face getting red. Like, that was a real confession right there. It was really embarrassing, huh? What did you dress as? Niall, of course. I loved Niall. Niall and I were going to get married, but he didn't know me. I know. He totally bailed on my marriage act. What? Yeah, he knew me. If I knew him in my heart, he knew me in his. But then I went to high school and I was like, this has to cut it. It's not going to happen. And Instagram had just come out. And of course, my whole Instagram was unorganized. So I had to delete all my posts. That's my shame. Um, (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. I like feel my body like trying to hide. Um, But. Shame, a defense against being devalued by others. Okay, that's a very light example. But right now, I'm like trying to defend myself while trying to be confessional about being devalued. I'm afraid you guys are going to make me less value now because you know my past. But no, that's just a light example. I'm okay, I've healed, and uh, their music is very good. Um, So that's, that's another way of putting shame a defense against being devalued by others. It was my response to like not want to tell you guys because I'm like hearing laughter and like you guys are going to look at me differently. But um, at a deeper level, when we sin or when sin happens to us or there's something dirty and icky and something about our past that we don't like or something about our family's past or something that we've experienced and we don't want anybody to know it because we're afraid they're going to look at us differently, we feel shame. And it's that feeling of wanting to put a paper bag, wanting to like cover up, wanting to like stand like this, not look anyone in the eye. And uh, 
it, it, it's, it's really tough. Shame isn't something that just lasts for a moment. Shame is actually something that sticks to us like glue, and it forms our substance if we don't scrape it off. But getting out of shame can be a very painful process. It says, here are four ways that core, uh, four core ways shame shapes, shame shapes people's lives. This is from the Clearview Treatment Program. People who live with shame often avoid relationships, vulnerability, and community. They want to hide and self-conceal. People who live with shame are prone to suppressing their emotions. People who feel ashamed of who they are or ashamed of something that happened to them often keep their thoughts and feelings wrapped up inside. People who live with shame often feel worthless, depressed, and anxious. People who are constantly ashamed live out a difficult emotional and mental battle each and every day. And shame is still something that consumes the lives of us as Christians. When I was about 13, this is something I actually never opened up to anyone about because I had such deep shame for it. When I was about 13, something had happened to me. And it was a group of people, and it, it wasn't a good situation. But it was something that happened to me at a sleepover late at night. And I knew that it was bad, and I knew that it wasn't good. And I never told anyone. Because I was afraid that that person would get in trouble, that that person would get in trouble because they watched, and that I would be devalued and looked at differently, accused that it was my fault for it happening. So I never opened up about anything when I was 13 years old. That instance even though I thought I had dealt with it, because I never told anyone, shaped me to my core. I had a difficulty looking my parents in the eye. I didn't tell them anything, and I thought I was a good kid. I don't know why, but it, it reacted in such a physical way that I could be watching One Direction videos online, like funny interviews or whatever. When my, whenever my mom came into my room, I wanted to shut everything and hide. I wasn't doing anything. There's nothing that I'm doing. What, what are you talking, why are you asking me? She's like, what were you, I wasn't, I wasn't watching anything. I don't know why this happened, but every aspect of my life, I couldn't open up to my mom about. I couldn't tell her anything. And she knew that something was going on inside of me, but I was not courageous enough to open up because I thought no one would understand. I thought that I would be blamed. Because of that instance, my first relationship was, I was pretty young, and I actually ended up being an abusive relationship. And I was so unaware of it because I thought that's the way I should have been treated. Until I went to a school assembly when I was 14 years old, and my best friend turned to me and she said, you're in an abusive relationship. I said, no, I'm not. She said, yes, you are. Get out of it. She was a good friend. And I got out of it. But that situation when I was 13, I never told a single soul. In fact, vulnerability came very difficult for me. I never opened up to anyone. My mom could ask me how my day was, and I'd say, fine. It could have been a really good day, not opening up. And I was very stubborn about it. I don't know why. It's just the way shame affected me. Until I became a Christian. There's this thing called vulnerability in Bible studies. And I was like, why do we have to do this? They're like, what's your prayer request? I was like, I don't know. Get better sleep. And they're like, that's not it. I was like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to be vulnerable. I didn't know how to open up until I had friends poking and prodding me. Open up. Tell me about yourself. Tell me about yourself. I know there's something. When I was getting married, engaged to my now husband, I realized that there would be a point where I'd have to open up my baggage and reveal everything in my suitcase. So that when we got married, there's no like, what? You know? And there was this instance that happened when I was 13 that I thought I dealt with. I brought before the cross. I told Jesus about. I repented of. I asked for forgiveness. When I went and got baptized, I thought of that moment. I said, Jesus, I am washing it off of me. I don't want this anymore. And then I had to tell Will. 
Still, years later, I had to tell someone about it because I never did. And I, was, I remember folding my laundry in my bedroom, whatever, and I just felt the Lord say, Christina, remember that? And I was like, oh, I don't like that. Take that. Get out of my mind. He said, I want you to tell your fiance. I was like, ah. He's like, I'm like, I don't know what to do. Like, I already dealt with it. He's like, I want you to tell him. And guys, oh, this was the hardest situation of my life. Something that I thought that I dealt with. And I had to sit down on his couch. And I kid you not, I'm not an easy crier. Y'all, I was weeping, okay? I sat next to him and I was like, I, 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 I can't. I, 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 and my, my throat felt like it was locked. And then I finally, after 30 minutes of holding, <laughs> holding him hostage, no, I'm kidding. After 30 minutes of weeping, I said it. Just like that woman, I went down and I said everything, every detail, every moment. And I looked at him, I was like, so do you think of me any differently? And he said, Christina, I didn't know what you were going to tell me, but I knew that whatever it was, I vowed to love you and I vowed to love God. And I would not uh, hold forgiveness against you if that's not what God does. And I was like, whoa. And then we went to church. It was great. But I say that all to say that when we talk about shame, it seems like, oh, that's something that someone else deals with. But y'all, if there's something in your life that you haven't told someone about, even if you're an avid One Directioner fan, no. If there's something really deep that's shaping you to your core and something that you feel ashamed about, something that someone did to you and you don't know how to talk about it or something that you did, oh, guys, I'm telling you, do not be like me. I held it in for nine years of my life. Get it out. You won't be devalued. Talk to a Christian te- uh, teacher. Yeah, a Christian teacher. Talk to a Christian leader, a Christian, your parents, anyone that you trust. If they love God and they love you, they will never hold unforgiveness against you. They will never hold love from you. Do it. Because it's the best thing that you could do. It is freedom. Do you guys know that psychologists say that the number one trick to getting out of shame is confession? Well, that sounds Christian. But it's true. This is what psychologists say. And I also want to pull up just, it says four core ways to get yourself out of shame, to get rid of shame. And what's really interesting is that these are the same steps that this woman took 2,000 years ago. And there were no psychologists telling her back then. This is what our uh, findings tell us today. And I want to share them to you guys. And think about the woman who dealt with shame. It says, number one, seek out relationships and commit to vulnerability um, with safe people. It goes on to say, do everything in your power to find community. Shame begins to disappear when it is shared in a safe place. Move out of your head and into the open. Don't keep everything inside. Oh, I love this. This woman was seeking out community and she was like, I trust physicians, physicians. She was just trying to heal heal me, heal me, heal me. And what she did is she ran and she sought out the most important relationship, which was Jesus. She didn't just like look for it, like she sought it. And she committed to vulnerability with him. And he is the safest person. Second, take a risk. Here's what it goes on to say. Attempt something that might end in failure. Do something that is difficult. You will either succeed and find hope that you can do more than you thought, or you might fail and realize that failure isn't the end of the world. Either way, you begin to find healing for your shame. Take a risk. This woman, okay, arguably took the biggest risk. If she can't go into the temple and hears about this guy who's rumored to be the son of David, who's like the son of God, and she goes to touch the son of God, she could, like, people probably could, like, condemn, like, on the spot, like, in flames. Like, this was a huge risk. And she said, no, I believe that healing is possible. And I believe that my Lord loves me. And when she touched him, instantly she was healed. Not only did she take a risk by touching the literal Messiah, but she took a risk by going out in front of everybody and doing this. 
That's crazy. Point three, believe that healing is possible. It goes on to say, make one good decision in the right direction and see how you feel. Believe that you can choose to make good choices over and over again until your life is completely changed. Now that point is from um, Clearview Treatment Program, but I want to go on and say that that point kind of emphasizes what you can do. And as Christians, it says, uh, emphasize in your life what God does for you. With man, it may be impossible, but with God, all things are possible. When you believe in healing, you believe that it is God's work through you to make one good decision after another, to keep moving in one degree better, um, to get rid of shame. It is all about God who works within us. If we have faith, it is in his power. Psychologists do tend to stress vulnerability, and that is a big key to getting out of shame. Tell someone. But this passage that we see with Jesus, what does he commend the woman for? Faith. Because it takes a lot of courage to go out of your comfort zone and to seek the living God, to fall down on his knees and to believe in him for healing. That is faith. So I would say that's the most important part of shame. Believe that Jesus can heal you. So with that being said, I want to ask you guys, do you believe that Jesus can make you fully well? Are you just as crazy as this woman to believe that Jesus can make you fully well? And I kind of want to talk about this in, in, in a verse. It says, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Any uncleanness that you have, whether it's a sin, whether, whatever it is, Jesus can purify it all. He can make you fully well. I challenge you not to run after Jesus just because he can fix one little thing in your life or get you that thing you want him. Pursue him because he can make you fully righteous in his own clothing. He can purify you in his own strength. Something that's also interesting about this woman is when she heard about Jesus, she didn't just join the crowd. She didn't just stand back in the crowd and say, yeah, I'll get to him eventually. Yeah, maybe, maybe I'll brush up alongside him. Maybe I'll have that casual contact. She pushed through everyone and intentionally pursued him. So I want to ask you guys today, where are you at? Are you someone in the crowd just waiting to be touched by Jesus, just wanting to see what he's about? Or are you here to intentionally pursue him in front of everyone you know, in front of the private, in front of the public, going before Jesus, touching his garment, knowing that he can make you fully well? This woman was not healed because she was in casual contact with Jesus. This woman was healed because she has intentional pursuit of Jesus. And we can make that decision today, every day of our lives. Say, am I running after the Messiah? So I'm going to do something to wrap our time up. I want everyone to bow their heads and to close their eyes. Now I just want to ask you guys a few questions. One. No one's looking, so keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Are you someone who has been in casual contact with Jesus? Just a little Jesus here, just a little Jesus there. I really don't need to spend time with him. It's okay, I'm busy with other things. Or are you someone who wants to intentionally pursue him with all that you've got? Run up to the top of the mountain and experience the presence of the Lord. 
if you want to intentionally pursue him and you want to make that decision today to turn around and to intentionally pursue him, would you just raise your hand and declare that this is something you want to do? No one's looking. This is only before you and Jesus. Jesus has acknowledged me before men and I will acknowledge you before my Father. It's just a declaration. Keep your hands raised. Two, if you've just heard of Jesus today and you've heard of the gospel that Jesus died for your sin, he took your place and rose from the grave and is giving you new life and you want that new life, you want to run after Jesus and you want to join these women who are running after him, would you just raise your hand? I want to follow Jesus today. See you keep your hands raised. And three, if you've been riddled in shame, disgust, sin, if something happened to you and you have not opened up about it or you've done something, if you have some bad view of yourself and you want to be like that woman and lay it all down at Jesus' feet and you want to get it out of your head, would you just raise your hand as a call to Jesus to confess your sin before him? See you guys. And you can lower your hands. And I just want to encourage you guys today that Jesus sees you. He loves you guys so much. And I'm going to give us some time. I'm going to give you like a minute. Just go before him like that woman did. Lay down at the feet of Jesus. If you want to kneel, kneel. I'm for kneeling. If you want to stand, go ahead. If you want to just bow your heads and pray, spend this time in prayer before the Lord. I'll give you about a minute. Make that declaration before him. Father, we come before you, God, with our dirty rags, God, of sin, of shame, of pain. Father, we know that we've confessed them before, them, before you, then you are just and you are faithful to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and to purify us. So, Father, I pray over all of these women here today, all of these girls, God. I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and settle in them and those who have not yet touched your spirit or felt the warmth of your presence, Father. I pray for the girls who have given their life to you today, God. I pray that you would strengthen them. God, help them to walk this walk and to be freed of their shackles, Father. I also pray for the girls who've decided to re-follow after you, to commit their lives to you, to run, Father, to no longer be in the back of the crowd, but to run after you. I pray that you would give them fierce boldness, Father, a love for your word and a passion for your truth. And Father, I pray for those who um, want to confess their sin before you, Father. I pray that they would find a trusted person to say it out loud to, Father, whether it is me or a leader here. I pray, Father, that they would not be like me for nine years and hold it in, but they would say it boldly and bravely out loud to a trusted person. I pray over all these girls, Father. Walk with them. May they feel your love, Father. And I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.